This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Many times I've tried to tell you, many times I've cried alone. Always I'm surprised how well you cut my feelings to the bone. Don't wanna leave you really. I've invested too much time to give you up that easy. To the doubts that complicate your mind, we belong to the light. We belong to the dark. We belong to the sound of the words we all call it. sign of weakness when I don't know what to say. Maybe I just would know what to do with my strength anyway. Have we become a habit? Do we distort the facts? There is no looking forward. Now there's no turning back when we say we belong to the we belong to the panda. We belong to the sound of the words we all call it I've said it before and I'll say it again. No more f***ing ABBA. What is up, theatre nerds? It is us, Mel and Mike, for another Journey Backstage. If you missed our latest episode, you missed out on our 100th, and it was a cracker, covering the great Kiwi musical no one knew about, and the musical of the week was the beloved Moulin Rouge. It was a great episode, and whether you're joining us live on Free FM or catching up later on on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, AccessMedia.nz, doesn't matter what, welcome, welcome, and thrice welcome. We just have to very quickly acknowledge the fact, though, that you um, may have noticed we were missing in action for the last couple of weeks. Yeah, we've been, well, most of you know that I started uh, my new job, I quit my old job, and I got married all in the space of about three weeks, and then to put a cherry on top of that, just a couple of days after my wedding last week, uh, Kate, my new wife, and I both tested positive for COVID, so I've been just not well enough to really think about doing anything or talking on the doing, wireless or yeah. anything else. <laughs> no, that's right. I've been doing a lot of sleeping. Um, so that's my bad, guys. An eventful time, though, as you said, you know, starting a new job is a big thing anyway. And then you had the wedding. So you ended up uh, gaining a wife. You gained a hyphen in your name, yep. yeah, which is a really cool thing. Yep. And then gaining COVID to cap it off. And I just, you know, I've, I've been very lucky, very lucky, touching wood and all that. I have been surrounded by people with COVID, but so far I've not picked it up. I'm interested to know what your experience of it was because I'm, I'm getting the sense that it's a very individual thing. You know, that's the sort of, I think that's the discovery I've made over the last, or oh, maybe the last week or so. So lots of people have said, oh, it's just like getting a cold. And, you know, I've heard of people that have said, oh, I didn't get symptoms at all. Um, I have to say that I, I guess there are some cold-like symptoms, but for the most part, my experience has been not really de- uh, describable or comparable to anything I've experienced before. Um, you know, I've been really tired, really tired all the time, <laughs> exhausted. That's, that's, that's the overarching thing, yeah. That's been the crux of my journey, yeah. Yeah. 
after also having had a tumultuous time with COVID this year, Hamilton Playbox's next offering is Sherlock Holmes and the Baker Street Irregulars. Uh, it's going to be directed by Glenn Matthews. Sherlock Holmes is missing and the streets of London are awash with crime. So who's going to save the day with Sherlock out of action? Well, it's the Baker Street Irregulars, a gang of street kids hired by Sherlock himself to help solve the cases. Now, they must band together to prove not only that Sherlock isn't dead, but also find the mayor's missing daughter, untangle a murder mystery from their own past, and face the criminal mastermind behind it all, a bandit who may just be the brilliant evil Moriarty, the man who killed Sherlock himself. Can a group of orphans, pickpockets, inventors, and artists rescue the people of London? The game is afoot, and you can visit Rivoli Theatre in July to find out. Gosh, with that in mind, uh, we should probably get your calendars out for everything we know of coming up around the place soonish. Have to say, though, what a brilliant premise for a story. I'm gripped already, and I want to see that show. I think it's going to be great. For the, the Baker Street Irregulars are an Arthur Conan Doyle um, creation. Yeah. It was written by the, they were written by him. So I think it's going to be fun to see a story that we recognise with characters that we don't. I think yeah. it's going to be fun. I think it'll be fun too. All right, let's get the calendars out. What's on, Mel? At the Meteor, there's a few things coming up. The Longest Drink in Town, directed by Liam Hinton and Dave Taylor. That's going to stage April 27th to the 30th. Hysterical, created and performed by Kerry Rudzinski and Olivia Hall. That's going to stage May 5th and 6th. The Sherpa and the Beekeeper, written and directed by Matt Cambick. That's May 26th to the 29th. His Girl Friday uh, is being presented by Cinema Improviso on May 7th. And That Bloody Woman, directed by Courtney Mayle and Kyle Chewin for Bold Theatre. Early bird tickets for the August season are on sale right now. Gosh, isn't it good to see the meteor swinging back into action like that and with brand new lose in time for all of this too. Looking forward to christening those. <laughs> Aren't we all? We should have had town on again. Rivoli Theatre, <laughs> Rivoli Theatre in Hamilton, Blood Brothers, directed by Angela Walker for Hamilton Musical Theatre. We open on May the 14th, running through to the 28th, and I can tell you the insider story is it's going to be fantastic. And as we were just talking about, Sherlock Holmes and the Baker Street Irregulars, directed by Glenn Matthews for Hamilton Playbox, opens July the 2nd, running to the 16th. At Clarence Street Theatre, Friends, the musical parody, unfortunately has been cancelled. Shrek, the musical, directed by Nick Wilkinson, uh, is going to stage in the July school holidays. That's July 19th to the 23rd. And you've probably heard that Hamilton Operatic Society's production of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang has been cancelled or postponed indefinitely for now. Still more to come on that, I'm sure. I feel for Hamilton Operatic Society, it's been a difficult few years for them. And it's uh, always hard to try to bounce back from knockbacks like that. And I hope that they regroup and, and can get back into the swing of things as soon as possible. Gallagher yeah. Academy of Performing Arts at the University of Waikato have Three Sisters by Anton Chekhov. Great play. Presented by the University of Waikato third year theatre studies students, June the 9th and 10th. At Navarra Lounge, open mic night tonight and every Wednesday the doors open at 6pm if you want to perform. Bookings are essential, so do that in advance. Friday, April 8th, Everlasting Bonfire are playing with date month year that they get to stage at 9pm and on Saturday April the 9th the Dorks are playing with The Unforeseen it's at 7pm Ta'awa Mutu have uh, Tell Us a Story at the Woolshed Theatre presented by Ta'awa Mutu Light Operatic Society on stage in June the Tiaroha Little Theatre are not planning any productions until they're at the orange traffic light just for those of you who have been wondering there's a few places that are opting for um, you know the safe but sure uh, approach and that's perfectly fine Nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Gaslight Theatre in Cambridge have conjugal rights by Roger Hall opening April 30th, running to the 14th of May. And The Things I Know to Be True by Andrew Bovell and directed by Chrissy Hodgkinson is opening July 30th, running to August the 13th. Mata Mata Dramatic Society still have Any Port in a Pandemic by Richard Previtt coming up. That goes to stage April 23rd and runs until the 30th. Thames Music and Drama, Mamma Mia, directed by Diane Connors, opens May 28th, running to June the 4th. In Rotorua, Rotorua Musical Theatre have Song Contest, the Almost Eurovision Experience, directed by John Drummond. That's on stage right now and closes on April the 9th. Onifero Society of Performing Arts, Peninsula by Gary Henderson, directed by Jess and Scott Lorimer, opening May 28th to June the 5th. 
Over in Tauranga, the 16th Ave Theatre have unfortunately cancelled their production of Ngā Puki, which was going to be happening over Anzac weekend. Detour Theatre, also in Tauranga, have the Hard Case Hotel, written and directed by Devin Williamson. That's on stage right now until April the 9th. And Tauranga Musical Theatre have That Bloody Woman, directed by Daryl Nitschke. That goes to stage April 23rd and runs until May the 2nd. Looking forward to that one too, and the Hamilton version from Bold Theatre a bit later in the year. Theatre Whakatane School of Rock, the musical directed by Sue Harris, June 22nd to July 9th. And Auckland Theatre Company have Scenes from a Yellow Peril by Nathan Joe, directed by Jane Yong. That goes to stage June 21st and runs until July the 3rd. Let's talk about auditions and opportunities now. Tokoroa Little Theatre are hoping to stage a youth musical production in July with Lana Ahomero seeking interest from potential musical or vocal directors. Now, if you are keen, you can send a message through their Facebook page to express your interest. Tauranga Musical Theatre are holding auditions for their 2022 season of We Will Rock You. Those are happening across the weekend of April 22nd to the 25th. And TMT's Facebook page has all the information you need. I was privileged to go to an information evening about this on Sunday night, actually, and um, was really blown away by their planning for this particular production. It's going to be their major one for the year since they were not able to stage Les Miserables. And it Mm. will be a Baycourt Theatre. It's going to be huge. Uh, the other opportunity we have on the list here is the Miss Cadaver Undead Beauty Pageant, taking entries for the final ever Miss Cadaver contest. Entries are now open and close August the 1st. If you would like to get involved, email Sandra Jensen 99 at com, and you'll get more information. As always, we will be announcing all the productions we know of as soon as we hear of them. If there is a show or an audition opportunity you would like us to spread the word about, just flick us an email at backstagepodcastnz at gmail.com. Or, as we always say too, just tap us on the shoulder and let us know next time you see us out and about.
I will survive from our musical of the week, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, of mm-hmm. course, adapted from the hugely popular 1994 film. Uh, now seems about the right time, Mike, for you to just give us all the goods. Oh, why not? Let's launch into it. Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is a jukebox musical with book by Australian film director, writer Stephen Elliott and Alan Scott, using the well-known pop songs that, that have been the heart of it as its score. They punctuated the film and they've become really the, the basis for the musical. Adapted from Elliot's 1994 film, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, the musical tells the story of two drag queens and a trans woman who contract to perform a drag show at a resort in Alice Springs. As they head west from Sydney aboard their lavender bus named Priscilla, the three friends encounter a number of strange characters as well as a whole bunch of incidents of homophobia while widening comfort zones and finding new horizons and making some unlikely friends as well. Priscilla debuted in Australia at the Lyric Theatre Sydney October of 2006, having had a successful run in Sydney. The production then transferred to Melbourne the next year, and then in Auckland in 2008 before returning to Sydney for a limited engagement to cap it all off. The Australasian success of Priscilla provoked a two-year-strong West End production, in addition to a Bette Midler-produced Broadway debut in 2011. And while the original production received only one of its seven Helpman Award nominations in Australia, Priscilla was nominated for the UK's Laurence Olivier Award for Best New Musical, as well as two Tony Awards, winning in the costume design categories in that case. Now let's run through the synopsis in case you don't know it. The drag queen Mitzi Matosis, stage name of Anthony Tick Belrose, is performing at a club when his estranged wife Marion calls in for a favour. She reveals that she needs an act for a few weeks at her business in distant Alice Springs. Tick is at first quite reluctant, but Marion informs him that part of the reason she's asking is because their now eight-year-old son Benji is keen to meet his dad. Tick confides in another fellow drag queen, Farah, before deciding he will leave for Alice Springs. Tick then calls a friend, a transgender woman named Bernadette, to join him, but Bernadette's husband has just died. The pair meet at the funeral, where Bernadette finally agrees to join him. Tick also asks another friend, Felicia, stage name of Adam Whitley, to come with them, with Bernadette taking an immediate dislike to his show-off performance style. But nonetheless, the newly formed trio buy a budget Barbie camper van, a bus. They nickname it Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Tick then informs them that the trip is a favour to his wife, but he doesn't mention the critical bit that it's also to meet his son. As the journey to Alice Springs begins, Adam angers Bernadette after making transphobic jokes about her life before transitioning. And this is a really nice bit of um, antagonism that sort of kicks off the journey. And you know from the start with it's got to be resolved somewhere along the line, but it's a, it's a nice sort of working off of two characters against each other. Later, the group arrives at a bar in Broken Hill in full drag and start a bar dance party. But when they return to the bus, they learn that the townspeople wrote hateful statements on the bus in spray paint. Tick is very upset, but Adam and Bernadette comfort him. And while on the road, Priscilla breaks down and Adam buys some lavender paint to erase the vandalism. They manage to get the locals of another town on their side and they there meet Bob, a mechanic from a small town nearby, who agrees to help fix Priscilla. The group celebrates that they've found people that finally accept them. That's the end of Act 1. So I'm making a nice quick synopsis for you this week, Mel. I didn't want you to get bored. No, we like it. (laughs) (laughs) Act two, Bernadette talks with Bob the mechanic and learns that when he was in Sydney, he saw her when she was a young lady girl. The two begin to grow feelings for each other. And later in a bar, the trio was about to perform when Cynthia, Bob's wife, interrupts their act by performing her party trick involving popping ping pong balls. After this, the trio prepares to leave, leaving Bob to wonder about his feelings for Bernadette. And all of a sudden, Bernadette asks if he wants a free ride back to his real home, in which he agrees. Back on the road, Adam dresses up like a woman to try to meet men, but ends up getting chased and nearly becomes the victim of a hate crime until Bernadette rescues him by kicking one of his attackers. Later, when they finally arrive in Ellis Springs, Tick reflects on the trip after someone literally leaves the cake out in the rain. Cue the MacArthur Park song. Okay. As another act performs first, the trio gets ready to perform a variety of songs that they sang or lip-synced on their journey. And afterwards, Tick finally meets his son Benji, who accepts his dad's sexuality and his lifestyle. Afterwards, the gang talks about their plans after Alice Springs, 
and realise that they can't leave each other after all. They go off stage together and the company performs a medley of songs to close the show, which for a jukebox production is pretty much standard fare, isn't it? That's what yeah. happened at the end of Mamma Mia, it's what happens at the end of a bunch of fun. Anywho... The show has had surprisingly wide appeal around the world. Uh, there was Australia 2006 to 08, West End 09 to 11. It was in Toronto for two years, 2010 to 2011. Broadway, which is the Bette Midler-backed version, 2011 to 2012. Sao Paulo uh, had it in 2012. There was a US national tour the following year, a UK national tour from 2013 to 2014. It's been in Stockholm, Argentina, Athens, Manila, Singapore, Seoul. Spain, it ran four years in Spain, uh, UK national tour in 2015 to 16, Norwegian epic cruise ship lines had it on board, Auckland saw a return in 2016, it's been in Tokyo, Paris, South Africa, Hong Kong, Munich, St. Galen, Australia uh, extensively and other smaller productions throughout 2018, Italy had it for three years, 2018 to 2020, Tokyo in 2019 just before COVID and a UK national tour was scheduled to take place in 2019. I think it started last year. In reviewing the 2009 West End production, the London Evening Standard reviewer wrote, From the first moments when the three divas hang suspended high above a silver-spangled bridge and belt out downtown, the show never loses its spectacular helter-skelter momentum of songs to which the drag queens lip-sync. Reviews for the 2010 Toronto production include praise for the outfits, the costumes, designed by Tim Chappell and Lizzie Gardner, the same team that won an Oscar for the movie, are a fabulous mix of village people meet Tim Burton, culminating in at the curtain call a whole crass menagerie of dragged-up koalas and ruse. Another comment on that particular production said, This eye-popping, ear-pleasing, toe-tapping honey of a show moves like a cyclone from start to finish and will leave you gasping for breath on numerous occasions. Thanks to its spectacular spectacle, its raunchy humour and its virtuoso performances. I think by and large people love it. Okay, But it's not without its controversy. Yeah, well it's interesting how popular it was given the time, you know, we weren't as we weren't as civilized about these things as we maybe are now. No, you'd like to think so, wouldn't you? It's also surprising to me that in '94, when when the movie came out, just how groundbreaking that was. Because I, I thought by then we were pretty enlightened, but things have changed. Mm. And you, you're right to say that uh, this day and age, you would say, "Well, okay, what was all the fuss about?" But the show is not without its controversy, and now it seems to be more centred around the idea of casting, and I've got a bit to say about that. Because after the announcement that the UK tour of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert would be resuming in June of last year, uh, the casting of the tour caused a bit of backlash after a cis male was cast in the role of Bernadette, and this was after the production held an open casting call for trans performers. The producers felt compelled to release the following statement addressing the backlash on that, and I've, I thought this was really interesting, so I'm going to read it all, okay? It's only a few paragraphs. When we originally cast the production in 2019, before COVID, we did audition trans performers, but despite seeing talent, didn't find anyone suitable for any role in our production. We believe we cast very talented actors who would tell the story of Priscilla in the best way possible. However, as some of our cast were not returning to resume their roles, it gave us the opportunity to expand our casting process. So this time, we included an open casting call for trans performers because on other shows, we've had success with open casting calls. We looked for talented performers who can act, dance and sing, but required no previous experience, as we've always been prepared to invest our resources in talent. On all our shows, we looked to find diverse, talented performers and looked to be inclusive at all times. Every production is a journey, and we hope to find a performer in our open call who could join us on that journey. Following our open audition process, we are delighted that Ellie Daniel will be joining the company as part of the ensemble, a role previously performed by a cis female, and acting as one of our understudies for the role of Bernadette. We chose Ellie not because she was a transgender performer, but because she was the best actor for the role. We are aware that for some people, casting cis performers in the role of trans characters doesn't sit well. We believe that inclusivity extends to all members of the company and that all roles are open to everyone. With that principle, we believe we have cast the very best performers to portray all the parts in this glorious show, which centres its themes about inclusion, acceptance and tolerance. Our job in theatre is to tell stories in the best way possible, and we believe that by having more diversity and inclusivity in our shows, we're better able to do that. We think that the theatre has been trying to lead the way and has made much progress in the last few years, but there is always more we can do to reflect the society in which we live. 
The last year, while our industry has been shut down, has given us the opportunity to reflect on how we do things, and there have been many discussions on how we can improve. As producers, we're very happy with our casting process and the excellent talented performers we've engaged for our production. Now, there's a spin on all of that, obviously. Mm. But this is a subject you and I have talked about before, Mel. You know, um, do you cast somebody based on uh, anything other than being the best person for the role? Yeah, we have come back to it a few times, haven't we? Um, I I really struggle very much on the fence, you know, as as a person who demands fair representation on stage and in our storytelling. I agree that we should be outraged. However, as a director and a theatre maker, uh, you, you do just want to cast the best person for the role. It's, it's really tricky. I find it a really tricky one. In, to, in community theatre, in community theatre in particular, it's really hard. We've mentioned that before. You know, professionally, uh, you've often got more options, and you possibly should be making more of an effort to um, achieve greater inclusivity. They're claiming in that statement that they cast the net as wide as they could. They still found that the best person for the role was a cis actor. But they've mm. uh, cast a trans person in another role that didn't require somebody to be trans, but that person is still regarded as being strong enough to be part of the ensemble and strong enough to be an understudy. Yeah, and I can see, um, you know, what they're trying to do there. You know, why should we relegate this trans actor to just one role because they happen to be trans? Why couldn't they? Why can't they be in the running for any role? Um, I, it's, it's all... I, find it all a very interesting conversation to have mm. and you, like I said I don't I can't decide <laughs> no I don't I would not expecting to come up with you know definitive answers at this stage in fact yeah. I, think, I think it's one of those discussions that probably we're going to have for decades uh, as long yeah. as humans are humans we're going to have diversity aren't we but the important thing is to not close your mind to it and be open to casting anybody in anything if they're the best person for the role that's how I see it yeah well I mean, the, the conversation there then extends to if a white guy is the best person to play a black guy. Yeah, we've done is that, that before. Okay? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So There's probably bit, some areas that are still a bit, bit grey, aren't they? Yeah, the conversation, um, yeah, still evolving. Anywho. We might have got rid of blackface, but... <laughs> <laughs> as far as Priscilla Queen at the desert goes, that, as they say, is pretty much all I have to say about that. Interesting story, well, isn't it? It is very interesting, and I'm a, I am a sucker for a good jukebox musical, and I say good intentionally because I don't think there are too many good jukebox musicals around. But Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is one of those ones that my mum, I grew up listening to it because my mum loved the film, and this has just been a really fun trip down memory lane for me. I, for me, one of the standout performances uh, in the movie was Terence Stamp uh, as Bernadette, and I don't think that character could have been the same with anybody other than him in that role. He gave it a nice level of acidity and jadedness that I think it needed. And I'm sure that in stage productions that have followed the film, they have been trying really hard to try and emulate that sort of feeling, you know, that that antagonism in the beginning between the two two characters on the bus and uh, poor old Tick so in the too, middle yeah. of it all. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, production. Looking forward to seeing it whenever it may happen next. Great. That's just what this country needs. A cock in a frock on a rock.
Downtown from our musical of the week, which is Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. You are backstage with Mel and Mike on Free FM 89.0. Now, it's been so long, Mike, since we last caught up. I don't know if I'm fully up to speed with everything that's been going on. I just read this morning that local performer Helen Drysdale Dunn will be taking the stage as Kate Shepherd for a couple of that bloody woman matinees. That's which exciting. I thought was Yeah, I thought that was very exciting. And so I figure, well, what else have I missed? <laughs> How is this year shaping up for you, everyone? Oh well, you've been uh, you've been sidetracked with so many other things, so you know you can be forgiven for that. Um, good on Helen for getting that opportunity. I think that's How great. How cool for is her. that, right? Yeah, she's such a talented person. As far as everything else goes, uh, we're, well, I'm up to my uh, collar in uh, Blood Brothers rehearsals, and I have to say I'm really excited by what Angela Walker's doing with the production, not just with yeah. my role, but with her vision for what the show is about and the grittiness and realism that she wants out of uh, the scenes. Um, it's a very stylized show in many ways, but it portrays some very visceral and very honest emotions, which I think we're going to get mm. on stage at Rivoli. So looking forward to us opening with that on May the 14th. I've kind of parked geezers in the back of my mind for now because um, we've got people involved in other things right now. Yeah. We have rescheduled geezers for August the 20th, and that will run for two weeks. But we were about three and a half weeks away from opening, in my estimation, from where we were when we decided to postpone. So I think uh, we will start rehearsals for that probably around uh, early to mid-July to get it up and running, ready to go on stage August the 20th. And I'm um, going to be very pleased to see uh, how audiences respond to that play too. That's another one that deals with some very real things and some very interesting uh, characters. And I'm, I'm super proud of the fact that we're still going to be able to go ahead and do that. Uh, so that, yeah. that's just simmering away on the back corner of the stove. <laughs> but we've also all, already started having uh, production meetings and getting things uh, in line for the Rivoli Christmas show, which is Saturday Night Fever. I've got the honour of directing that with um, John O'Hawthorne and um, Amelia Jennings as uh, musical director and choreographer, respectively, and a terrific team around us to bring that show to life at the end of November. We'll be holding auditions for that sometime in June, I think at the end of June. And looking forward to bringing what is one of the all-time great disco films, in fact, the only disco film of any real note, to the stage in Hamilton. Uh, it's going to be epic. I'm going to really enjoy um, the run-up to the end of the year, I think, with that, getting ready in the wings. That'll be a really good one to 
let our hair down at the end of this crazy year. Yeah, fingers crossed that we were able to to re- realise that ambition to go full speed yeah. into it, you know. But anyway, so. we all know about you getting COVID, mm. getting married and mm-hmm. doing all that, starting the new job. What else? Mm-hmm. What else have we got going on? And now that you're starting to feel well again, you're going to be released from captivity by tomorrow. So yes. um, what happens then? Yeah, well, Kate and I are off on a honeymoon for two weeks. I'm turning my phone off, everyone, and Mike will bring you some sort of all goodness next week. But um, behind the wedding plans and and sleeping from the sickness, um, I have been keeping myself just a little bit busy. Uh, March was a pretty good month, as you know, Mike, for Hamilton Musical Theatre that I'm the president of. Uh, Musical Theatre New Zealand held their AGM, and HMT were lucky enough to pick up a MTNZ Merit Award for Kerry Blakeney-Williams, who takes all of our wonderful photos. The ETNZ Youth Technical Achievement Award went to Sam Bolton, who was one of our young members and up-and-coming stage manager and tech guru. And very, most probably most excitingly, I think, is the Jennifer Wardley Lintiatameda Award for Culture and Diversity uh, went to HMT Life member Jane Barnett. <laughs> How great was that, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm a bit of a proud, proud mama, proud auntie um, <laughs> there. I also lined myself up a couple of post-wedding projects so I didn't get the blues too bad yeah. uh, now, that, now that all the fuss is over. So alongside stage managing the Sherpa and the beekeeper for Matt Campbell, I've been going on about for a few months now. Uh, I'll also be getting back onto the Riverly stage after, oh, I don't know, 18 mm-hmm. or so years. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I will be appearing as the world's youngest Mrs. Hudson and Sherlock Holmes and the Baker Street Irregulars. Oh, you go, uh, girl. Yeah. So that's, I think that's going to be uh, <laughs> just a little bit of fun. I'm really looking forward to some of the younger characters that I've worked with over the years getting to be on stage with them. Oh, good on you. Uh, I'm so pleased to see that. And then uh, you're putting on your stage manager's hat for me, uh, joining the team for Saturday Night Fever as well. That's the one. So it's in our first project together. Believe it or not, the oh, first yeah. time you and I are going to have a project together. Oh, I didn't. You see, people, well, I forget that. <laughs> yeah, I forget that we've actually never worked on an, a show together. Yeah, that's going to be a momentous occasion too. And then the honeymoon. Yeah. Tell me about yeah. that. Yeah, so we are leaving tomorrow uh, tomorrow morning and jumping in the car and going camping up north, up in the very tippy top of the country for a few nights. And then we're going to make our way back down uh visit Paihia, visit Waitangi, uh, visit Whangarei and just make our way back down to Auckland where we've got some fancy nights in a fancy hotel booked. Oh, nice. Just in your own time and your own speed. Yep, that's the one. Cool. What a way to spend a honeymoon. Oh, a whole lot of nothing to do. Very excited about it. (laughs) I'm so envious of you. Yeah, I've got a lot of reading to catch up on. Oh, good on you. And and very best wishes to both of you for a wonderful trip and a very memorable time. I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. Oh, I'm sure it will. Thanks, my friend. Right. So before we finish up, we've talked so much about weddings uh, and about musicals. So um, I think it would almost be a crime to not jump very briefly into a wedding themed play. Blood Wedding is a tragedy by Spanish dramatist Federico Garcia Lorca. It was written in 1932 and first performed at Teatro Beatriz in Madrid in March 1933, excuse my poor pronunciation, then later that year in Buenos Aires in Argentina. Bearing in mind that this is the same writer who created The House of Bernarda Alba, which is the one where all the, all the ladies die, so we already know that he has a penchant for the macabre. Blood Wedding is also commonly referred to as a folk tragedy in three acts, so buckle in. Yeah, buckle in, all right. As the play opens... The mother speaks with her son, the groom. These are the scripted names of the characters. Act 1 reveals that the groom's father was killed a few years ago by men from the Felix family. When the groom asks for a knife to cut olives in the vineyard, the mother reacts rather cautiously. Before giving the groom the knife, she discusses the cycles of violence and her trepidation. The groom leaves after hugging his mother goodbye, obviously assuring her, nah, it's going to be cool. I can, I, can, I, can, I can be trusted with a knife. It's all right. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> the neighbour arrives to chat with the mother and reveals to her that the bride was previously involved with a man named Leonardo Felix, a relative of the men who killed the mother's husband. The mother, who still hates the Felix family, is furious but decides to visit the girl before bringing the matter up with the groom. 
Leonardo, who is now married, returns to his home after work. And when he enters, the mother-in-law and wife are singing a lullaby to Leonardo's son. The lullaby's lyrics foreshadow the tragedies that will occur later in the play. Little girl enters the house and tells the family that the groom is preparing to marry the bride. Leonardo flies into a rage, scaring his wife, mother-in-law and little girl as he storms out of the house. (laughs) <laughs> little girl, <laughs> that kills me, little girl. Yeah. Okay, Act 2. It's the morning of the wedding. Leonardo comes to see the bride again. He speaks of his burning desire for her and the pride that kept him from marrying her before. Disturbed by his presence, she attempts to silence him but cannot deny that she still has feelings for him. The servant sends Leonardo away and guests begin arriving for the wedding. Now, after the wedding, the guests, the families and the newlywed couple return to the bride's house. The party progresses, but the bride retires to her room, claiming that she feels tired. Leonardo's wife tells the groom that her husband left on horseback, but the groom brushes her off, saying that Leonardo simply went for a quick ride. Now, we know this is getting a little convoluted, and the no-names thing makes things a bit tricky to follow, but bear with us. The groom returns to the main room and speaks with his mother. The guests then begin searching for the bride and groom, hoping to begin a traditional wedding dance. But the bride is nowhere to be found. The father orders the house searched, but Leonardo's wife bursts into the room and announces that her husband and the bride have run off together. The father refuses to believe it, but the groom flies into a rage and rides off with a friend to kill Leonardo. The mother, frenzied and furious, orders the entire wedding party out into the night to search for the runaways as the father collapses in grief. Act 3, yes, there are three acts, takes us out in the forest where three woodcutters emerge to discuss the events in a manner somewhat similar to that of a Greek chorus, except that they speak to each other and not to the audience. They reveal, this is good for a bit of exposition, I think, they reveal that the searchers have infiltrated the entire forest and that Leonardo, who is, after all, carrying a woman, will be caught soon if the moon comes out. As they flee the stage, the moon appears in the form of a young woodcutter with a white face. He states that by the end of the night, blood will be spilt. Death, then, disguised as an old beggar woman, enters and speaks of the finiteness of life and how the night will end in death. She orders the moon to provide much light, and the groom vows to kill Leonardo and reclaim his bride. Death, disguised, re-enters, telling the groom that she has seen Leonardo and can lead the groom to him. Elsewhere in the forest, specifically, the woodcutters are fervently chopping wood, praying that the lovers will be spared. Leonardo and the bride run on and discuss their future together. Both are filled with romantic angst and consumed by their burning, unsustainable love for each other. The bride begs Leonardo to flee, but he refuses. And then the couple hear footsteps. The groom and death are coming near. Leonardo exits and two screams ring out in the darkness. The moon and beggar woman reappear at the end of the scene. Leonardo and the groom have killed each other. Back in the town, death arrives to announce that doom has visited the forest. The mother enters, full of anger and black bitterness, only to see the bride returning, her dress covered in the blood of her lovers who killed each other in the forest. And then presumably, although this is never explicitly stated and it happens after the play has ended, the bride is afterwards killed as a sacrifice to restore the family's honour. There are some incarnations also of the play where it's suggested that the mother allows the bride to live based on the idea that living with the pain of her lover's deaths is a more severe punishment than her own death. And you can find a copy of the script online if you happen (laughs) to be so inclined. Just look for Blood Wedding. I love the um, you know, actors appearing as the moon and death and the Greek chorus idea. I love it. Old school. Yeah, it's pretty, it is pretty old school. I can't lie. I, I am a little morbidly curious. You know, I like challenging theatre content. And, and as we were sort of moving through that again just now, I, actually, I could enjoy this potentially. Yeah, I think I could. And I, I wonder if it's ever, you know, I'd never heard of it. I wonder if it's ever been done anywhere that, I've been and I've missed it somehow. I mean, it's. I think it's a pretty obscure sort of play. I had to sort of dig it up from the dregs of the internet when wow. I was looking for wedding-related related <laughs> plays. You did well, Grasshopper. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we won. I feel like that was a winner. I think that myself and all of our friends listening 
will have learned something today. Yeah, well, we may pitch it. We may decide that we might do it for the Garden Festival one year or something. That'd be cool. <laughs> that would be cool, actually. We'll leave that one with you then. Blood Wedding by Federico Garcia Lorca. And on that note, uh, thank you to FreeFM for hosting us. Also, thanks to Creative Waikato. We never forget you guys. You're sponsoring us. We do appreciate it. Absolutely, we do. Backstage, don't forget, is available on accessmedia.nz, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. I will be sharing all of our new content on our Instagram story and on Facebook. And come back next week for another hot musical, another delicious theatre-related morsel. I will keep the other details of the next episode under wraps for now because basically I'm going to be winging it (laughs) while Mel is away enjoying her honeymoon. Stay home if you're not feeling well. Stay safe out there in the community with all that COVID floating about as it does. Keep your masks on, keep distancing, just take care, be careful. Mel, enjoy your honeymoon. Best wishes again to you and Kate for a wonderful time. Look forward to seeing you when you you get back, mate. Yeah, I'm looking forward to telling you all about my nice relaxing holiday. (laughs) We're going out today with Colour My World from Musical of the Week, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Stay classy, theatre nerds. See ya!
I hereby christen this budget Barbie camper van Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.